Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there, this is Aaron Weinacht with the uh, Russian and Eurasian Studies section of the New Books Network, and I'm here uh, once again with uh, Dr. Don Ostrowski, uh, who's going to talk about a, a brand new book of his that's called Russia in the Early Modern World. So thanks for being on with us, Don. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, uh, I was looking very much looking forward to reading this book, and hopefully uh, uh, listeners will enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, so I, your subtitle is the, the continuity of change. And I was wondering if you could hold forth a bit on what you mean by that, since that kind of gets you into the main thesis of the book, I think. Yes. The, um, the, the, as, as I mentioned, I, I, I like the quotation so much. I wound up mentioning it twice in the book, um, you can teach a parrot to be a historian by teaching it to say continuity and change. <laughs> and, uh, um, the, the point is that um, I, I be, the, the, the book is a result of my being irritated. <laughs> uh, and I think a number, number of people write books and articles <laughs> because they're irritated about something. And what irritated me was the um, historians who claimed all sorts of things for Peter the First, Peter the Great, and never really supporting it, never really doing a comparison, just taking it as given. Um, and either in terms of that he changed everything or uh, and or he sp- he sped up the pace of change. Uh, in, in, in Russia. And I came to Peter not so much from 19th and 20th century, going back to the 18th, but from 15th and 16th century, going up through the 17th. And what I was seeing in Peter's reign was a whole lot of continuity. Um, and But when I would read historians writing about Peter, it the tendency was to treat the pre-Petrine period as one of stagnation, uh, superstition, uh, not not much change, and and going from the reigns of Ivan the Third to Vasily the Third to Ivan the Fourth and through the, the 17th century Romanovs, I was seeing a lot of change in. Uh, uh, in, in, that they were introducing, and that was occurring uh, in uh, in Russia, and I was also seeing um, a lot of change after Peter. That the tendency, again, in the historiography, was to claim that Peter was responsible for that change. That uh, his successors. Uh, wrote about. So 
it was this interplay of continuity and change um, and the 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 fact that in in early modern Russia change was uh, the continuity change was continuously going on and and that's why the uh, the subtitle the continuity of change. Do uh, I was thinking about you? You laid out a number of different uh, schools of thought on uh, interpreting Peter's reign, uh, which I was wondering if you could talk about here in a second. But it occurs to me, uh, given what you just said, that is if if most of what you saw is like historians of nineteenth and twentieth century Russia looking back on Peter's reign as this kind of great break. Um, is that just kind of a, that proceeds from a kind of residual Whiggishness there that where things had to turn out the way they did and Peter it kind of superficially looks like the beginning of it? Is that is that why lots of historians have tended to focus on him? Or how do you think historians of those periods came to that conclusion? That's, that's a good question. Um, I tended to lay some of the blame on Strabatov, uh because uh, he was very much opposed to uh, the reign of Catherine II, to Catherine II personally, and was looking as to, toward the reign of Peter as that that's the way it should be done. <laughs> and Catherine is doing it the wrong way. Uh, but I don't think it was... Oh, it was entirely Shabatov's fault. Uh, but uh, then you have Chidayev in, in the early 19th century who says, you know, at one time there was a great man who threw us the cloak of civilization, but we rejected it. And, th- and that great man was Peter. So there, there was this tendency to use Peter as an ideal monarch by later historians and philosophers and political commentators to criticize their own time. Uh, Now, I I think an entire book could be written about how that occurred. Uh, It it certainly has occurred in in other places, other times, in other countries. Uh, and, and I think that was part of my irritation is that I, I was looking for the evidence. I, what is the evidence here? Uh, and, I, and I wasn't finding it. Uh, and the arguments were not, when there were arguments, they were rather specious. Um, otherwise, it was just taken as a given. And, and we see this. You know, for example, in um, American colleges and universities, where uh, for the most part the tendency is to take Peter's reign as uh, the the beginning of the new semester. We'll start with Peter the first, and uh, and well, they I think are missing out uh, on a great deal. I teach a, a course in history of Russian culture, and Russian culture is very rich. But if you just start with Peter's reign, 
you're you're missing out on a whole lot now to be sure subsequent to peter uh much of the culture becomes something that is a little more familiar to us somewhat like renaissance writings and art are something that more familiar to us than medieval writing and art you have to it's 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 a little challenging for students to uh to you know when they're introduced to the medieval writing and art to, uh, uh but but once it's explains and they say oh yeah now i see it um whereas renaissance writing and art doesn't really have to be explained very much we're in post-renaissance period and so you know it's a post-petrine period and people feel well it doesn't doesn't need an explanation yeah i um I was trying to decide now if uh, I divide my two Russian history classes in 1881, uh, and I'm trying to decide if that's uh, uh, better or worse. (laughs) Well, it's different. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know anybody else who does that, but you know what? I had the freedom to do it, so I did it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Uh, I think whatever makes you feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, So that said... Um, one of your first sections here is, is on the, uh, the, the, the question of the, the Russia as an empire. So I thought maybe you could start off by talking about that. Like, how is the, how's the Russian empire growing and changing long before Peter? And then of course, continuing to do so, uh, during and after his reign. Yeah. And that, that, that ties in with the other aspect. I've been teaching world history now for 30 years. And there's a disconnect between world history and Russian history uh, in in terms of the historiography. Uh, Not in terms of the evidence, interestingly. So I teach a course, uh, The Age of Empires, 1500 to 1800, roughly the early modern period. And Russia fits very neatly into the age of empires. Uh, It depends to a certain extent on what one means by empire. And I think the working definition I have uh, is when you have uh, an ethnic group at the top that rules other ethnic groups. Uh, So, a nation state would be one ethnic group, pretty much, you know. Um, but the an empire involves some kind of uh, dominant ethnic group and subdominant uh, ethnic groups, and I and Russia already had that. They, they I mean, even, uh, even before the expansion into Siberia. Uh, in the 16th century, uh, the expansion down the Volga brought in all sorts of Tatar uh, groups. The expansion northward to the White Sea brought in uh, uh, Finnish groups, uh, Baltic groups. There, so there, there were uh, the, Russia <laughs> throughout this period. Uh, it, it it may be kind of um, 
odd to say so, but Russia was very much a melting pot uh, as Russia was acquiring these other ethnic groups, the Russian state government was acquiring these other ethnic groups at, at, in terms of elite families trying to figure some way to incorporate the elite families of these other groups like the Ukrainians into their own uh, system, uh, but also to incorporate uh, Tatars, uh, Finns, uh, people, people of uh, Baltic ancestry into their structure, their social structure. And because they didn't have a, uh, uh, <clears throat> a Bureau of uh, Naturalization, the, uh, the way to determine whether someone was a Russian or not uh, was whether they uh, were Russian Orthodox. If they if they accepted the, the 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 primacy of the metropolitan of Moscow and then the patriarch, and often had to go through a, a, a process of catechization, then they were considered Russian, even if their language uh, was uh, not exactly fluent. They weren't speaking fluent Russian. Their ancestry wasn't Russian uh, in the sense that we would understand that their genetic makeup wasn't Russian. But as long as they were Russian Orthodox, practitioners of Russian Orthodoxy, then that became the marker. Uh, and and we see this in the, in the 17th century where mercenaries were brought into by, by the, the Tsar uh, to serve the Tsar foreign mercenaries from Europe. Uh, but there was a distinction, you know, not always followed, but for the most part followed that they could only be given land for their service as a reward for their service if they converted. And there was a lot of pressure put on a number of these European mercenaries to convert to Russian Orthodoxy. Uh, and one of the rewards was they would receive land. Uh, so the uh, so empire is is a it's a it's a fluid concept, but when one looks at other empires of the time, from the 16th through the 18th century, Russia is an, a, a very nice fit. So yeah, I think I think it was an empire. So does, um, I guess, you know, in a lot of literature on Peter, um, you know, his reign is seen as expanding the empire. You've got, um, you know, the cross and the bearing and so on. Um, so you're, you're seeing that, you know, not so much as a break really, but just as a continuation uh, more or less of the, the imperial expansion that's gone before. Yes. And I have a, um, an, anal an analysis in the book about the amount of territory. Yes, I agree. The, the, the prevailing view is that Peter expanded the empire. And yes, some, some land was acquired. 
uh, but also some was given up. So I, I decided, well, let's do a comparison. Uh, how much how much land did Russia, and now I'm including Muscovy as Russia, uh, acquire before Peter, and how much land did it acquire after Peter, and let's compare that with how much land Peter re- acquired. And Peter comes off on the low end <laughs> in terms of land acquisition, territorial acquisition. Uh, on average, we're talking uh, per year average land acquisition. It was greater before Peter and greater after Peter. Uh, so on that, uh, kind of continuing on here a little bit, um, in one of your your following chapters after the, the one on the, the empire, you talk quite a bit about the importance of marriage politics in the, the aristocracy. Um, and uh, I was wondering if you could talk about that uh, some more uh, as, uh, as well as a, as a continuous phenomenon that passes through Peter's reign and, and onwards. Yes. The, you know, um, I'm picking up on a lot, on a lot of work that Russ Martin did on marriage politics at, at the court. And, and Russ, you know, is very generous in his praise of Ned Keenan for heading him in, in that direction as I am too. And it, it really does, I think, help to explain the, the evidence that we're seeing that these elite families of uh, at at court and those even those not at court, there was a delicate balance. Um, and when the czar, the ruler, married someone, the you know in traditional countries they marry someone, or traditional European countries, let's say they the the ruler marries someone from another ruling house. Uh, you get a lot of intermarriage that way, and it helps leg- legitimize their own, their own rule. In Russia, because of the re- religious issue, this creates a problem because they do not want their daughters, uh, the ruler doesn't want his daughter converting to Catholicism or Protestantism or Islam, but uh, so, but the uh, the last attempt was the marriage with the Lithuanian Grand Prince, uh, and the idea was he would allow uh, the uh, Ivan the Third's daughter to uh, remain Russian Orthodox, but. And and that he would abide by certain ceremonies of of of, of, the, of the wedding ceremony, which he didn't do, and there was pressure put on her to convert, uh, and that kind that was fourteen ninety seven, and that kind of ended the foreign marriage uh, uh, practice for uh, pretty much two hundred years. So. Then that well, who then should the ruler or the the heir to the throne? Well, who should that person marry? Well, they had to marry down into the aristocracy, into the Russian aristocracy. Uh, 
But if they married someone of the high nobility uh, of the of the ruling elite, then that upset the balance because then that family had much more power than they did before and could dominate uh, family politics uh, in in the state. So the idea was to marry someone from the lower uh, uh, ruling class, someone whose family did not have much status. But the but and that would raise their status, but it had to be done very carefully, because it had to have the approval of the upper uh, ruling class families to allow this family from the lower ruling class to gain in status. Uh, and it's not just Russia that had that problem. We we see it in uh, England when when Henry VIII married Anne Boleyn. And the Boleyns rise in status. There's a huge opposition because apparently Henry hadn't cleared it. <laughs> with the he, he had just fallen for Anne and uh, said, "I'm going to marry her," and and this created a lot of antagonism. So the the and and the, and the result was she got beheaded. Um, so in Russia, there was there was an attempt to maintain political stability. That, that seems pretty clear. Uh, and by choosing the right person, now there, there, there would be certain, as Russ Martin pointed out, there would be certain candidates who the czar could choose. This was a so-called bride show. Uh, uh, but they were limited and they had already been vetted uh, you know, for their uh, physical health uh, so that they could produce uh, an heir but also for their political acceptability. Um, and the, the system worked pretty well. There, there were some shenanigans going on. Russ talks about that in his book. Uh, but it, it, it worked pretty well. Uh, it, at least it got, the, the, uh, got Russia through the 16th and 17th centuries. Now, uh, recently... Paul Bushkovich has written a book on succession in Russia. And when I first got wind of the book and started to read it, I I was wondering, well, why is he writing this book? <laughs> well, you know, succession is succession, right? Well, it turns out there was something that irritated him <laughs> uh, about the way historians were approaching the whole succession issue. And when I got into the book a bit more, I realized he was right. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the tendency has been to think in terms of, well, the, uh, before, before the, the 15th century, Succession was in Rus, in the Rus principalities, was collateral, uh, which meant that when a ruler died, his eldest brother would succeed him, down to the fourth brother, 
if they got that far. Then when the fourth brother died, the eldest son of the eldest brother who had ruled would then succeed. Uh, Then they would go through all the sons of the eldest brother. And when the last of those or the fourth one of those died, then they would go to the eldest son of the second brother. So it, 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 it was a system that worked well when people died early, when, when men died early, or either in combat or disease or whatever. But as uh, either there was fewer men died in combat or people got healthier, there tended to be a lot of potential rulers in line uh, for succession. Uh, now, the, the, the Black Death tended to weed that out in, in the Muscovite ruling family in the 14th century. But then in the early 15th century, we come down to a situation where uh, you have the son of the previous ruler, so Vasily II, uh, claims the throne, but his uncle, that is the younger brother of his his father, also claims the throne. Yuri, the the uncle, claims on the basis of collateral succession. Uh, Vasily doesn't doesn't exactly have uh, a direct claim, uh, except that his grandfather had said in a document that Vasily should, should uh, uh, or Yuri should succeed Vasily the first. Uh, and, but then Vasily the second was born and said, well, I should succeed because the previous rulers, some of the previous rulers of Muscovy, there had been a father to son succession. But that was because there was no uncle, <laughs> because Black Death had wiped them out. So historians said, okay, well, this is the, the dichotomy here is between collateral succession and uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, patronymic, the, where the, the son succeeds the father. So they started to look at succession this, that way. Uh, and, but there wasn't really a justification for that in our sources, that the son should succeed the father. Now, Vasily II appoints his son, Ivan III, Kozar, and Ivan III appoints his son, Vasily III, Kozar, but Vasily III doesn't appoint his son Ivan IV Kozar because Ivan IV is only three years old. Uh, but they, they kind of overlook that. Uh, and and when we when uh, the son of Ivan IV dies, Yodor uh, dies, then someone who is not a Rurikid is chosen or is good enough. Well, how does that happen in a country that's supposed to be uh, a dynastic monarchy where the dynasty, you know, the, the, if, if, the, if the son of the ruler dies, then 
you you find a relative who is a Rory kid to succeed. But they didn't. They found Boris Goodenough. They chose Boris Goodenough, who was not in any by any means a Rory kid. He, uh, the uh, but they justified it on the basis, or at least the patriarch justified it on the basis that uh, Fyodor had no sons, uh, which was rather tenuous, a, a rather tenuous uh, justification because other, you know, as we see later in Russian history, when a ruler doesn't have a son, then they choose someone who's a close close relative. Uh, they, so something else was going on here. <laughs> uh, it wasn't patrilinear uh, succession. It was, I think, the ruling families. Ruling families were determining who the successor should be in the same way that they were determining who the bride of the czar should be. Uh, the czar had some choice within that, but there were only a few acceptable candidates. So the point is that the continuity throughout the 15th through 18th century is ruling families determining the, the, these essential issues. Uh, who who the, the ruler should marry uh, and or future ruler uh, and who um, was the uh, successor. Uh, and, 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 and until 1797, when under Paul, a law of succession is passed that makes it patrilinear. The eldest son shall succeed the father. So, so there's, um, so you're clearly not seeing any significant deviation from that uh, practice uh, in in Peter's reign. Then the uh, the kind of dominance of the, the prominent clan families. Not at all. And in, in in fact, Peter, you know the. Uh, when he issues his law of succession, um, in, in a way, it's just reverting to what Vasily II did uh, and Ivan III did, which was, I, I will designate my successor. Uh, now, they raised that person to Kozar uh, status. Uh, and as we know, Peter did not designate his successor. And then there's a a, a kind of uh, the the history of designation by subsequent rulers is very spotty. Um, the the choice of Peter's wife Catherine the first. Well, who made that decision? It wasn't Peter, but yet the law was the ruler designates the successor. Uh, Elizabeth comes to the throne through a coup. <laughs> she was not designated by her predecessor, palace coup. Uh, but she does designate Peter III, but then Catherine II comes through, to the throne through another palace coup. And there is an attempt, a kind of post facto attempt to get Peter 
uh, after he's already overthrown, <laughs> to say, oh, yes, I choose Catherine. But that, that was clearly under uh, duress. And then when uh, Catherine the second was uh, nearing the, the, her end. Uh, she really didn't like her son Paul and was seriously considering designating Alexander, uh, her grandson. Um, she didn't do that and uh, allowed Paul to succeed, but as we know, he, he was overthrown, again, internally. Uh, and each of these successions in the 18th century, I think it was felt was created instability uh, within the succession process, that the, the uh, process had seemed to be working fairly well in the 16th and 17th century, with the possible exception of 1682, <laughs> when uh, Peter and Yvonne uh, are chosen, Yvonne V, uh, that it was felt that the ruling families were no longer uh, capable of maintaining that stability. So they needed to designate it in uh, a, a, a legal document so that they knew who the successor would be and in what order. So if the czar didn't have a son, who was next? Uh, who would be in the line of succession? As, as we see with the, the you know, present-day English monarchy, they, they, they have, I think, Princess Anne is something like 17th in line for succession, something like that. Uh, so they have it all designated. So there's complete stability, and they don't have to decide. now. One may ask, as I did, well, why then were there so many son, eldest son to, to father successions, or in the case of Catherine II, eldest son to mother succession? And the answer is that usually that is the most stable line of succession. In other words, it's not patrilinear, patrilineal. Uh, as a principle, uh, it, it's acceptable as a uh, because it makes is the least destabilizing to the regime uh, to the continuity uh, of the, there's not a reshuffling of the deck uh, of, of in, in terms of the uh, elite families and and their their power structure. But they reserve the right to change that. They reserve the right to um, decide who the ruler should be, but they needed a mechanism for that. And that's where the Zemsky Sobor comes in, uh, which both served to confirm a decision that was already made by the ruling families, but also could act as a referee if there was a dispute among the ruling families as to who the successor would be. Uh, so the when Peter's law of succession came in, when he issued that, uh, it's clear he wanted to replace the Zemsky Sobor as 
that mechanism for determining or deciding who who the successor should be, in part because it had been so disruptive in 1682, uh, when he, at first he, uh, and then he and his half brother uh, were chosen, and there were fatalities <laughs> uh, in 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 the process. Uh, riot, uh, the Kremlin was stormed, and and all of that. Uh, and Peter was old, old enough to remember that he was 10 years old at the time. He re- remembered that. And uh, uh, the, so there, there was, I think, a, a continued attempt to find some process to legitimize the decisions that the elite ruling families were making as well, not and uh, through the uh, uh, the Boyer Duma, uh, but also through the Holy Synod, uh, the, the prelates, church prelates. Uh, so, if uh, uh, the, uh, the marriage politics, the importance of marriage politics remains pretty pretty continuous. Um, Maybe we should press on to another subject or two here. Uh, you've got a, uh, some interesting material in the book on military change uh, as as well. I was uh, I was all, I was in particular I was kind of struck by your argument that it's not that uh, you know gunpowder weapons were somehow backwards in Russia; it's that they actually weren't all that advanced in Western Europe. Uh, uh, which I thought was a, it was uh, it was nicely done. So what's uh, what's what's some of the evidence then that shows that military change doesn't happen uh, significantly differently during Peter's reign than it did before? Uh, <clears throat> well, the, the evidence is that the much of the so-called modernization of the military occurred under uh, his father, Alexei. Uh, There's plenty of evidence for that. And it it goes back to Alexei's father, uh, Michael, uh, where the the attempt was to Europeanize the the Russian military. Up to that point, the, the Russian army fought like a steppe army, uh, very mobile, uh, horse archers. Be, why? Because they were fighting steppe armies. The, uh, you know, in, in the, the Tatar armies. And it, it, it was rather effective. But as Muscovy was expanding. It was coming in contact with European-style armies. And the decision was made in the 1670s, 1680s to uh, become more European uh, in in terms of uh, weaponry, the uh, reliance on more reliance on infantry, uh, the wagon train to supply the, uh, the military needs uh, 
of the troops as they moved. So you could cook food. You brought the food with you and cooked it uh, uh, for them uh, as, as they were on expedition. This did not work so well uh, when Galitsyn led two expeditions in the 1680s against the Crimean Tatars uh, because a European-style uh, army does not do well in a steppe situation. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, the the Crimean Tatars just used the methods at their disposal, which was uh, a scorched earth policy. They befouled the water. So the, the horses of uh, Galitsyn's army were uh, didn't didn't have enough fodder from from grass because it was all burned. Uh, they couldn't drink the water because it was toxic. Uh, and, you know, this is, we have the direct reports of, of the time on this, and both expeditions failed. Uh, but he comes back, and Sophia, who's regent, <laughs> awards him, gives him medals and so forth, for his successful uh, campaigns. And uh, so I think what the the result is that historians look at this and say, oh, well, you know, that was a Muscovite army. Well, it wasn't. It was a European-type army. <laughs> but the thinking is, oh, when I was a Muscovite-type army, uh, it failed. Therefore, when Peter came in, he had to modernize it. I, and no, it was already modernized. In, in the same sense that Charles XII inherited the reforms of his father, Charles XI, militarily, <laughs> and, and I might say that Alexander the Great in, inherited the military reforms of his father, Philip, so too Peter inherited the military reforms of his father, Alexei. Russia was well on the way to uh, the uh, Europeanizing its army by the time Peter came to the assume power. Uh, he does make an important innovation, and that's the dragoons, because he was fighting, and, and the dragoons were specific for fighting the Swedes, because the Swedes had a large dragoon presence. Uh, and the, the advantage of the dragoons is that they were mobile, uh, and they were, but they were not heavy cavalry. Uh, so the, 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 they were called Peter's Flying Corps, and they they proved uh, decisive, I think, in the events leading up to the Battle of Poltava in 1721, and the the defeat of Charles XII at Poltava. Uh, but then, after the Swedes are defeated and the, uh, the end of the Great Northern War, the dragoons are pretty much abandoned in, in the Russian army. So this, this innovation that Peter was responsible for um, pretty much ends with Peter. <laughs> it was successful, very successful, but then it pretty much ended. Huh, I, didn't, I did not know that. Why, do, you, do you have any sense of why that was? Well, there, there was no need, no need for, well, 
uh, being a dragoon was considered low status, <laughs> for one thing. Um, but there, were, there was really no need in in the subsequent wars. There were there there were some dragoon regiments, but nowhere near the numbers that they were uh, under Peter. It, it's it's somewhat similar to the Russian Navy. You know, Peter, the founder of the Russian Navy, except, and and to his credit, yes, he, he, he did wonderful things and defeated the Swedes at Hongo and Battle of Hongo and so forth. Uh, had, had defeated the Turks <laughs> uh, at, uh, at uh, Azov, but also <laughs> lost what he had gained uh, subsequently in, in but the uh, but after after Peter died, the the navy was pretty much allowed to deteriorate. There was no no real incentive to continue to support the navy. So by oh within ten fifteen years of uh, Peter's death, there there was no Russian navy to speak of, uh, and it was Catherine the second who revived it. Uh, but she rarely gets credit for that. She's not called the mother of the Russian Navy. <laughs> no, if she has, I've I've never heard anyone say that. Yeah. So, uh, uh, on you've got a whole chapter in here on uh, on economic matters too, which I, I have to say I was. Uh, um, I was, I was, uh, I laughed with with your opening quotation from Grimmel's house in there. Simply Cecimus has got to be one of the funniest books ever written. So, uh, that's, I very much enjoyed that. Yeah, it's a great book. It, for, for those who haven't read it, I recommend it highly. Yeah, I still, I think my, my favorite line from the whole book is actually close to the beginning where he's, uh, he's talking about how when he was a kid, his windows were christened to St. No Glass. Uh, that's a, that's a, what a great joke. Yeah. So, uh, um, so on economic matters here, it uh, looks like you've, you know, you've contended that basically Russia was part of this, you know, uh, economic network all over Europe long before uh, long before Peter and so on. Uh, so how does, uh, what are some good examples of that? Russia being involved in, uh, I'm not sure international might be a bit of an anachronism at that point, but um, um, you know, what, what's Russia involved in economically that makes Peter's reign look the way you've portrayed it? Well, a lot, a lot of work has been done on this. Yarmo um, Kaltaline done extensive work on the late 17th century. Um, and the, the interconnections between uh, Russia and uh, European merchants, but you know also other people. Erica Monahan has uh, discussed this uh, as well. The bringing in of products from China <laughs> uh, across Russia in, in, into Europe, rhubarb, for example, which was a a, a, a big deal. The uh, trade in furs was. Uh, uh, very important uh, forest products. So, you know, all of this predates Peter and goes way back to Novgorod, you know, when Novgorod was an independent uh, city-state. So um, the 
under Peter, yes, there, there was an uh, increase in iron production, uh, to be sure. But this, this was not, this was pig iron, basically, um, which is fine. I mean, but it, it's not high quality iron. Um, the, uh, but what I was trying, I, I, I spent some time talking about the, uh, you know, the, the uh, Goldstone's theory and how applicable it is to uh, early modern Russia. And Chester Dunning uh, has done a, quite a bit of work uh, on looking at, at this question. Uh, the, and then Turchin and Nefedev picked up on what Goldstone had, had done. And what surprised me is that very little has been written in Russian historiography about Turchin and Nefedev. Uh, whether one agrees with them or not, this is, this is a rather comprehensive attempt to um, categorize Russian economic history into certain cycles. Um, but there's... Um, the book has, has been reviewed by European sociologists, but not by Russian historians or economists, as far as I know. So I, I wanted to bring it to the attention of Russianists uh, that this is, uh, this is, this is a, a book that should be uh, at least acknowledged that, that it exists. Uh, uh, and uh, this, this is the book Secular Cycles that they wrote. Uh, I am a bit critical of how they use some of their sources, but I, I didn't want that to be a indication that I didn't like the book or I didn't like their attempt uh, to kind of re rethink things and reconceptualize uh, Russian economic history, which which I did. I like their attempt uh, very much, and and I think you know we we could see more of that kind of attempts at reconceptualization rather than just repeating the traditional narrative, you know, the conventional wisdom. Uh, that uh, we learned its graduate students. Um, we, I think we really need to rethink a lot of that. Not necessarily to reject it, <laughs> uh, but in the process, we may have to reject portions of the traditional narrative because the, the people who wrote the traditional narrative, and I'm talking now going back to Karim Zin and Solovyov and Kluchevsky, Platonov, they all had their own uh, influences on them, uh, contemporary influences on them. They all, they all had, 
either consciously or subconsciously a uh, that, uh, things that were influencing them in how they were understanding the sources. Now, when we come along later, not to say we don't have our own conscious and subconscious influences, but at least we can determine where they um, could have done better. <laughs> uh, for example, uh, Charles Halpern has a really outstanding article on how Kluchevsky treated the Tatars in his history. He does. He just virtually ignores them. Now, the Mongols and Tatars, whatever you want to say, the, the, the Mongol Tatars had a huge impact on early Rus history. On, on, they ruled Rus. <laughs> Let's face it, they ruled Rus. Um, for hundreds of years. This is sometimes referred to as the Tatar yoke, which is a myth. Uh, but the, uh, to ignore it, and what is even more astounding is that Kluchevsky was well aware of the Tatars. He grew up in an area where there were many Tatars. He knew the Tatars. He was familiar with them. And then in his history, he, he hardly mentions them. That is odd. Uh, but since he was a person of his time, it's understandable within that context. But we don't have to make the same mistake. I'm sure all our, uh, our descendants will be happy to tell us which ones we did, in fact, make. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, when, uh, when I, I hear that uh, uh, something is dated, when, when I read that something, oh, that, that move, movie from the 1930s is dated, <laughs> I think, yeah, that's... As a historian, I want dated because that helps me date the movie. That that helps me understand the context of of the time. And future generations will look at us and say that we're dated. Yep. Well, I always tell my history, my students that if you don't learn any humility from history, you haven't learned much at all. So yes. uh, the uh the kind of the last I think we got enough time for one more kind of uh, big theme here and the the one that uh, that we really haven't got to yet is the relationship between Peter and the church. Um, so I think maybe maybe if you could comment on that a bit, that might be a good place to kind of uh, wrap up a bit. Of course, the whole you know Peter and the church thing. If anybody knows anything really about Peter, maybe other than the beard taxes, it probably has something to do with um, Peter's. Uh, um, Supposed assault on the church, yeah, I suppose. So, what uh, what springs to mind on that subject? Yeah, the I, I again, I think it's it's an attempt by uh, beginning with nineteenth uh, century liberal Russian historians who are secularized and and really don't like the church. They see it as a, a uh, retrogressive influence on society, and they're using Peter as a kind of club <laughs> to say, "See, Peter was opposed to the church." But w when you look at the evidence, okay, yes, he ended the patriarchate, but he did so with the approval 
of the church prelates. How did that happen? Oh, he must have browbeat them into, well, um, I, I don't buy the browbeating argument. Instead, um, I look back into the, the, our sources for the 17th century and what the church hierarchy was trying to do. And they had an entire program of prosphistiania, of enlightenment enlightenment of the population. Why? Because they thought the population was too superstitious. Uh, and they wanted to uh, enlighten them on Christian values uh, and and uh, get rid of things like prayers in a hat and this kind of superstition that, that was going on. Um, but they were stymied. <laughs> In in the the prog- well, first of all, <laughs> Nikon comes along and tries to impose bully everyone uh, and creates a huge reaction. Patriarch Nikon, and then the subsequent patriarchs seem to be dragging their feet for one reason or another uh, on implementing an enlightenment. Program and it's this religious enlightenment. Uh, Peter himself was uh, very religious. He, he attended church regularly. Uh, he didn't particularly care if the preacher criticized him or his regime. But otherwise, if the preacher stuck to religious matters, he, he was uh, a, a big supporter of the Orthodox Church. He did not like the fact that um, a lot of monasteries were supporting people who were less than devout as monks, uh, were just there for the free ride, <laughs> as it were. That was recognized within the church. That wasn't something that Peter made up uh, on his own. Uh, so that accounts for his wanting to reform uh, the monasteries. And the, the issue, he, he was rather reluctant, as we know, to appoint a new patriarch. And then eventually, uh, uh, one of the prelates writes up this justification for not appointing a new patriarch and for returning the, the governance of the church to what it had been before there was a patriarch, which is the Holy Synod. The Holy Synod would govern the church. Uh, Peter does adjust the composition of the Holy Synod to make it uh, less monopolized by the hierarchy, so it brings in others to bring their opinions. Uh, but the church continued to thrive under Peter throughout the 18th century, throughout the 19th century, uh, as it is, is well recognized. Greg Fries has written uh, about this, as, as have other historians. So the idea that Peter was opposed to the church or assaulted the church, I think is a late 19th century Russian liberal historians uh, 
concept that they they were using for their own reasons during their own, their own time. So it, it's I'm trying to kind of sum up here a little bit. Uh, it sounds an obvious question to ask at this point is okay. So if there's so much evidence against seeing Peter as this uh, this great break point, then how has that idea? Uh, you know, lasted so long, and it sounds to me like the the conclusion here is that, um, you know, Russian historians in the 19th century seized on that idea for their own reasons, maybe inspired, say, like somebody like Chidayev, and then you know, historians in uh, you know, say, in the English speaking world, have have picked up on that kind of uncritically, just carried that forward. Is that a kind of an accurate summary? Yes, I, you know, Milyukov is, is one of those individuals, great historian, no question about it, but he did uh, convey, he was one of the ones who conveyed uh, this attitude uh, to the point, it, okay, I'm not against conveying attitudes, but they have to be based on evidence. <laughs> uh and if you if you read a statement by a historian and there's no evidence to support it, there's no footnote, there's no argument. You you begin to say, well, okay, what is this based on? And then you read some other historian who says the same thing or something very similar. Again, no evidence, no argument. Well, okay, so you have two historians, and then you read a third and a fourth and a fifth, and then you begin to wonder, well, what is the evidence? Is there any evidence? Uh, and you start digging and you find out in many cases, no, there is no evidence. This is just something that's repeated from one historian to another. And and it's one of the reasons why many history departments (laughs) begin their, they divide Russian history, begin their semester with Peter the first, not you, but, uh, because that's just the conventional wisdom. Peter changed everything. He's the continental divide of Russian history. So, of course, you begin with Peter. It does seem like there's a good bit of inertia in operation here. Oh, yeah. You know, and and, uh, world history textbooks do the same thing. You know, you would think that they (laughs) might be better, but uh, they they talk about Ivan the Terrible, you know, and how he uh, wanted to destroy the boyars. And then they jump to Peter the <laughs> First, and 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 if there's any mention of anybody in between, oh, they're weak czars. And he said, "Weak? Michael was so, not weak. <laughs> Boris was not weak. All right. Alexei that's, was not." <laughs> that's kind of the 1066 and all that treatment of Russian exactly. history, right? Yeah, with the the capital letters, bad king or weak king or whatever. That's right. Uh, so um, I'm curious now, you know. Some books are quite narrowly focused. Others, like this one here, have pretty broad implications. I mean, that's and uh, maybe, maybe it's going too far to say you're kind of uh, taking issue with a sacred cow here. I think I may have just mixed my metaphor, but um, but uh, I mean, to an extent, that's what you're you're doing. So, do you, do you have any sense at this point of how much traction your your book is getting among uh, you know among others in the in other Russian historians? Uh, I, I, I will say this. <laughs> uh, you know, the, uh, 
Lexington Books asked me to ask some of my colleagues for blurbs for the book. And, uh, you know, to, and I must say you know, that I, I was very touched and very pleased by the quality of the blurbs that the people I asked provided. I, I, Russ Martin, Kira Stevens, David Goldfrank, and Erica Monahan. They, it, it wasn't just pro forma, you know, oh, this is a great book, everyone should read. They, it was clear they had read the book or they had read what I had sent them, uh, the, the TypeScript proof pages at the time. Because, uh, you know, as, as, as an author, when one reads a review of one's book, one can tell, <laughs> one can tell if the reviewer <laughs> read the book. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm still, I'm still hoping. I haven't seen any uh, scholarly reviews of my book yet, so I'm, I'm hoping they will have read it from, in the same way. Yeah, an excellent book, by the way. I, for all of you <laughs> listeners out there, I recommend Aaron's book uh, very, very highly. Uh, yeah. So the and the uh, the people who have contacted me. I let's put it this way. So far, uh, I've heard no negative, nothing negative, no negative comments about the book. Yeah, I was just I was curious, you know, because more more so than most books I've talked to people about, this one really kind of, uh, you know, cuts at the at the heart of a pretty long lasting narrative. So I I'll be um, uh, I'll be curious to see what kind of reviews come out over the next uh, over the next little bit. Well, you know the uh, what what I find uh, you probably find this too, and when one is teaching students in a course, one can go to great lengths to show how the prevailing view of something is incorrect. And then on the exam, <laughs> you you get the student presenting <laughs> the, the very uh, view that you had spent so much time knocking down. Um, yeah. Yeah. That is uh, unfortunately true. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think there. I I'm, I was just glad to get it published because it it you know as as I mentioned I I had started it well fifteen more than fifteen years ago and I intended it to, as a as a short interpretive essay a little over a hundred pages like Marshall Poe's book on on the Russian moment and um, it it just I, I think because I, I I don't know why it went beyond that, but it just did, and it kept growing and more and more. And I felt I had to cover this and that before I could say this other thing. Um, I got a lot of good feedback uh, along the way, and but it it got to the point where I was thinking, is this thing ever going to see the light of day? <laughs> Am I ever going to be done with it? <laughs> Uh, so, uh, fortunately, you know, 
Lexington Books contacted me and said, do you have a book manuscript? I said, well, yes, I do, but you might not be interested in it. Uh, I sent it, and they said, yeah, well, we're interested in publishing it. Well, I think we should probably uh, wrap it up here at this point. So thanks for the uh, thanks for the chat, Don. I'd be, as I said, I'd be quite curious to see how big of a splash your particular thesis uh, makes uh, overall. So that was it was a. I think the first Russian history book I ever read was I was probably twelve and happened to pick up Massey's book on Peter the Great off my dad's bookshelf, which you know, that would be a good example, I think, of the kind of general presentation you're taking some issue with here. So, um, I uh, um, I hope we can have a chat about your next project. Oh yes, yeah. Uh, the uh, I I have completed a. Uh, a book with uh, Chris Raffensperger on ruling families in early Rus, uh, up up to uh, Muscovy, and uh, that should be coming out sometime in January. Oh, great! Well, I'll uh, look forward to reading that when it comes out. And I look forward to your interviewing me when it comes out. All right. Well, thank you very much, Don. Thanks, Aaron.